This is Mikey D. Welcome to my stoop. A long time ago, in a far-off corner of a major city, was a small American town called East Harlem. There were many faces, but no Facebook. A few twits, but no Twitter. And we didn't use a device when we wanted to socialize. We just opened the door and walked out to our stoop. It seems like such a long time ago, like an ancient city, a myth. As if it had watched it all from the stoops of Atlantis. It's a time period that's been written and filmed and reminisced about to the extreme, but with good reason. A ton happened that summer. The best part was Star Wars. The worst was the day I thought all my fish would die. Yeah, and in between, there were R-rated movies, a city darkened into chaos, a clubhouse fiasco, cold zeppelis, and the hunting of a serial killer. By 77, my friends Mimo and Vito had moved away, out of the city, part of the great exodus of the 60s and 70s. I guess Star Wars would greet them no matter where they went, but the series of events in New York City that summer were all for the entertainment of us left-behinders. My friends were Christopher, Jennifer, Scott, and Joe. Scott often spent time in Staten Island with family, and Joe would go upstate. That left the core four. Chris and Jennifer signed up for day camp that summer. A summer without them was going to suck. So me and Laura convinced my parents, and we joined as well. We would all meet at LaGuardia House on 116th near 2nd Avenue. It was a community center, an old folks' home. We were separated into groups, and I discovered that two of my grade school pals, Howard, my Hardy Boys partner in crime, and Gary, my on-again, off-again friend-slash-boy, had also signed up. I wasn't in their group, but I discovered one of their first excursions was a trip to see Star Wars. Yeah, it was that summer, check out episode 10, of Luke and Leia Love. Not sure how many times they had seen it in this moment in time, but if the opportunity arose to see it again, I was going to be there. And I managed to finagle my way into that group. This was great. They can't rule just one day in, and I could tick off yet another viewing of the greatest movie ever made. And to the theater we headed, the Cosmo Theater, an old snowy cinema on 116th between 3rd and Lexington. This movie house, long gone, was notorious for a great place to catch a second-hand high. But wait, Star Wars was not on the marquee? What was that? We were heading to see Squirm, an R-rated low-budget horror film about worms attacking a small southern backwater town. Rated R. I didn't get the okay by my parents to see an R-rated movie until I was like 36, let alone the 5th grade. But in we went as clouds of urine and the essence of old joints fragranced the already stale air of the once elegant movie house. The movie was cheesy as hell and would end up as fodder for Mystery Science Theater 3000. In recent years, I actually met the director, a pretty nice dude. It had some pretty scary moments of disgust and even a touch of shower nudity which was cool to my puberty-stricken eyeballs. We laughed and fake barfed through the film, but when it was done, I decided I went back with my sister Chris and Jen. So the next day, I was back in that group. There was a certain New Yorker of unknown identity scaring us all that summer, and he was a hell of a lot more dangerous than electrified worms. The 44 caliber killer. The son of Sam. Yeah, he listened to the barking in his head. This dog apparently wasn't man's best friend. You had to be there, 
It was all we talked about, and every odd, scary, darkly clad or peculiar man in that in the slightest way resembled a vague police sketch was a possible suspect. I remember riding on the bus with my mom one day, and a serious-looking guy with intense eyes and an unquestionable murder in his heart sat near. I exchanged looks with my mom, and when he exited, she whispered to me and my sisters, That was the son of Sam. Of course it was. How could there be any doubt? We had ridden on the bus with a forty-four caliber killer and lived to tell the tale. Eh, so anyway, a couple of weeks went by in day camp. There were no visits to country watering holes. Instead, we went to the Astoria Pool, grouped in hand-holding pairs, and marched onto subway cars. The pool was in Queens. It was large and not very deep. It's the way I prefer it. We had fun on those solar-blasted baking days. Other trips were in museums, the Bronx Zoo, and back to Astoria Pool. It was different than hanging around the stoops trying to create our own fun. Part of me enjoyed it, and another part felt like I was back in school. I missed the freedom of stoop life. But there was another problem. Scott and Joe and I had recently completed a new clubhouse in my backyard. It was a cool one. It had a locked door and tar paper on the roof. On the front wall was painted the letters CAC in logo form. And the international communist conspiracy to sap and impurify all of our precious bodily fluids. The club against communists. Yeah, we didn't even know what a commie was, but we didn't really want any of them pinkos in our club. In reality, all we did was sit inside and snack on crab apples. We had a few issues of Joe's Playboy mags hidden under the floorboards as well. I find looking back that the idea of having a clubhouse was more important than any actual function it served. We also used the interior as a fireworks testing ground. We set off every kind of ground bloom, rocket, mortar, and explosive inside while watching from the other side of the yard. We even set off an M80 and watched from the kitchen as the roof lifted a foot into the air and fell back in place. Since I was away at camp Monday through Friday, 9 to 4, Joe and Scott had no access to the clubhouse. I was mercilessly mocked for going to day camp, and the concept of moving the entire structure to Joe's yard came up. I felt torn. Do I stay in day camp with one group of friends or quit and hang with the others? These decisions are tough at the age of 12. June became July, and we spent our day trips keeping an eye out for psychopaths, going to see Star Wars any chance I could while the Yankees were winning and my Mets lost. Then the Feast of Mount Carmel Church was set up. This meant dangerous rides and the smell of cooking sausages and zeppelis. It was a great atmosphere that lifted the otherwise desolate and dull neighborhood to a magical, almost movie-like feel. I always loved this time of year. It was a really hot, humid night that July 13th. My parents had a rare night out to a movie while my sisters and I hung out on the stoop. Scott's Uncle George was in the mood for Zeppelis and asked me and Joe to go buy a bag, his treat. So we took his cash and headed to 115th Street, walking through the crowds, enjoying the flashing colorful lights and the sounds of carnival games. As we returned to our busy block, alive with dozens of people hanging on stoops, playing radios, cards, or just yapping away, it was a very typical summer night amongst the stoops of Atlantis, until a lamppost went dark. That wasn't odd, and for a split second I figured someone had pounded the base of the light post with their foot or fist. Hell, even me, a skinny 12-year-old, could kick off the light with a well-placed kick, like Fonzie in reverse. Cause I'm the Fonzie! The light would go off for a few seconds, then blink back to life. But this time, it was like illuminated dominoes, falling black one by one up 118th, all the way to 1st Avenue and beyond. A mixed chorus of cheers, a few screams, and muffled shout of confusion rose up. And then all hell broke loose. In less than a minute, there was a huge fire burning in the middle of my street. 
I mean, why? Did people mistake the streetlights for the sun and felt we needed an emergency heat source before the ice age returned? And minutes later, the furniture deliveries began. Well, for a second, that's what it looked like. Folks were wandering through my street carrying sofas and TVs and couches. I think some still had people sitting on them eating popcorn and watching a TV that was going in the opposite direction. It was crazy. What was going on? I heard the phrase blackout from someone. I don't think I had ever heard that before. It had been more than a decade since the last one. I was a baby at the time. Then a taxi pulled up and my parents got out. I rushed to them with a big smile. There's a blackout, I shouted as if a circus had arrived. And it had. They had been in a movie theater watching the island of Dr. Moreau when the lights went out. They ran out and were lucky enough to get a cab. I followed them inside, and as I strolled into my room, a horrid sight greeted me. My ten-gallon fish tank, sitting dark and silent. Dark was fine, I turned the lights off every night. But silent meant the filter and the air bubbler were off. Oh no, would all my fish just suffocate if this lasted more than an hour or so? My dad tried to convince me he'd be fine. I wasn't so confident. I wondered if I should start blowing into a straw, bubble the water myself. But my science class had taught me that humans exhale carbon dioxide. They needed oxygen. Poor fish. And a loud buzz came from the yard. I stepped into the blackness. The sky above was not clear and star-filled as I had hoped. It was hazy, hot, humid. The buzzing came from a few yards down where a pool of bright light glowed with the giddy sounds of laughter. Hey, how come they have lights, I asked. They have a generator, my dad explained. Ah, so that's what the buzz was. We should get one. I heard voices then, unrecognizable ones, inside. The visitors had arrived. Friends of my sisters who were on their way home to their own neighborhoods. With no option, they beelined it to the closest safe haven, our building. Blackouts create strange bedfellows. A friend of my sister Donna ended up sharing a bed with a friend of my sister Debbie. That was the first time they met. At Shea, the last pitch took place at 9.30 that evening. In the bottom of the sixth inning, Lenny Randall at the bat. Mets were losing 2-1 against the Cubs. Jane Jarvis, the organ player at Shea, actually played Jingle Bells in White Christmas. I would have loved to have been there. There was a party-like atmosphere on my block that night. But the murder of screaming sirens all around us hinted of the tale that would be made clearer in the morning newspapers. Arson, looting, vandalism, all the nasty habits that can emerge when a city is handicapped. A thousand fires, 1,600 stores robbed. And when the lights finally came back on the next day, it was clear under that yellowish glow that my fish were fine, just hungry and squinty-eyed. Mike, you gotta see this, Christopher called out to my living room from outside. I rushed out and he pointed across the street with a mix of fear and excitement in his eyes. A bright yellow Volkswagen bug was parked. My heart raced. Until now, the 44 caliber killer only worked in Queens and the Bronx. I guess it was time for an East Harlem target. We crept across the street and glanced at the interior. A pair of dark sunglasses rested on the dash. Yeah, this was the son of Sam. He wore dark glasses. There was a bag on the front seat. Ammo? His famous gun? A list of potential victims? It was August 11th. On that day, the man who killed because a dog asked him to was caught. David Berkowitz. A man who would more likely be cast in a movie to play a shoe salesman than a killer. But the paranoid lifted like humidity. The city could breathe again. Star Wars was still playing. And I needed to see it again and again. And the rest of that summer oozy ozied by as we recouped on the stoops of Atlantis. This has been The Stoops of Atlantis with Mikey D. Stay tuned for future episodes as we journey back to that ancient mythical land that actually existed, East Harlem. 
And please join the Stoops of Atlantis Facebook page, follow me on Twitter, and subscribe on YouTube or iTunes. See you next time.